I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Love Thy Neighbor. You can listen to the entire series right now only on Odyssey, where all of our episodes are available to binge. Before we begin, just a note that this episode contains explicit racist and anti-Semitic language and descriptions of violence. It's Monday, August 19th, 1991. One of those idyllic postcard-of-the-neighborhood-type evenings in Crown Heights. The kind you don't really get a lot in late summer. It's about 79 degrees with a slight breeze, and it feels like the entire neighborhood is out enjoying the night. A small break from the day's heavy humidity. The scene I'm about to describe is in some ways fairly straightforward. A series of events takes place, and there are several witnesses to what happened. It's been reported on and revisited, many, many times over the years. And yet, the way people viewed the events that evening depended on how they lived through the last 50 years of Crown Heights history. On the sidewalk, two blocks below Eastern Parkway, just off the intersection of President Street and Utica Avenue, are two young cousins, Gavin and Angela Cato. They're recent immigrants from Guyana. This part of the neighborhood is mostly West Indian and Black, the kids are both seven years old, and they're playing on a small red bicycle. On that day, August 19th, I can remember clearly, I got outside. We Gavin and his cousin, Angela, was playing. They were riding the bike and look up the road, and I saw this car coming through. This is Carmel Cato, Gavin's father, speaking to the New York Daily News in 2011 in one of the rare interviews he gave describing the events in detail. The car he's talking about is a dark blue Grand Marquis station wagon, the last in the three-car motorcade headed west on President Street. The first is an unmarked police car carrying two NYPD officers. In the middle car sits Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Grand Marquis trails behind the Rebbe's car carrying four Lubavitcher men, his entourage. The cars are headed west on President Street, It's around 8.20 p.m., half an hour after sunset. The first two cars cross through the intersection at Utica Avenue with no problem. But the third... Like, you know, and then when they got to the light where it should have stopped, it just, like, accelerated like that. Deanna McIntyre said she was standing on the corner of President and Utica that evening. Something was wrong. You knew something was wrong. I said to myself, oh, boy, this is going to be an accident. Carmel Cato again, talking with the Daily News. As it enters the intersection, the Grand Marquis collides with another car heading north. I saw the car just went off the road. And I st- stand there looking, wondering to know where it's going to end up, where his car is going to go. The car carrying the four Lubavitcher men skids over the curb 
and up onto the sidewalk. Next thing I heard is the sounds of the car ripping up the garbage. It went straight into the building and crushed the building, so it created a lot of sound with the metal and the concrete and the garbage buckets. It was like an explosion. My feeling then, I know Gavin was right there. I'm Collier Meyerson. You're listening to Love Thy Neighbor, Episode 4, Four Days in August. As Carmel Cato looks around for his son Gavin, a crowd from nearby buildings starts to form. I just remembered, like, when it crashed into the building, you just heard everybody start screaming because summertime, everybody's outside, so everybody saw. Deanna McIntyre again. No, even as a little girl, I thought about how our neighborhood was back then. This is a West Indian community. So you see something happen, everybody's going to come. Within two minutes of the crash, officers from the 71st Precinct are dispatched to the scene. At the same time, a member of a local volunteer EMS service calls for an ambulance. Like the patrol groups we've talked about before, the Maccabees and the Shmira, this ambulance service is owned and operated by the Lubavitch community. It's called Hatsala. The Hatsala ambulance arrives just a couple minutes later. Then, two police officers and a city ambulance pull up as well. Police, EMTs, a Jewish ambulance service, all showing up to the corner. The scene is total chaos. A crowd of Black folks from the neighborhood is assembling around the wreckage. People are screaming and crying, shouting that there are two kids trapped under the car. I remember they was like, don't move the car, telling them not to, you know, but people are going to do what they think is needed. Like, I think people have motherly instincts. Some people in the crowd start to confront the Jewish men still inside the Grand Marquis, yelling that they had sped through a red light. The crowd is demanding that the Lubavitcher men get out of the car. According to the police on the scene, when the four men do get out of the station wagon, several members of the crowd descend on them. One of the Jewish passengers is pulled away by a black man in the crowd. He shouts to the mob, he's mine, I'm gonna have him arrested but then drags him around the corner to safety. The two cops on the scene call for backup, and Officer Nona Capace is one of the first to respond. They were rocking the car, they were throwing things. I got hit in the hand with, with, a, with a, a bat. I was hitting my shooting hand, my right hand. This is Capace describing the scene for an audio documentary called The Accident from the Columbia School of Journalism. She and the other officers on the scene grabbed the men who were in the marquee. And uh, I helped carry them over to the ambulance, and they were rocking the ambulance, you know, the Jewish ambulance, the hot soul. They were, they were rocking it, they were throwing things. They get the men inside the ambulance, and Capace turns to the driver. And I told him, I said, you got to get out of here. And they said, but we, we have to treat him. We have to say, I said, you have to get out of here. They Look what they're doing to you, you know? And it's like, finally, you know, I had a curse act, and I said, get the fuck out of here. So they left. Capace's perspective on the events differs from how many Black people at the scene saw it. 
For them, it wasn't a matter of saving men who were being threatened. Something just felt wrong about not helping the injured children first. The Hatsala ambulance drives the Hasidic men away. Meanwhile, Gavin and Angela are still on the pavement. Gavin is unconscious. He's not breathing. A man in the crowd is trying to resuscitate him. At 8.32, about six minutes after the Hutzela ambulance left the scene, a city ambulance takes Gavin to Kings County Hospital. Another ambulance brings Angela minutes later. She has severe injuries to her left leg, but she survives. When Carmel, Gavin's father, arrives at the hospital, he waits for news outside the room where his son is being treated. He didn't move much, and I was keep thinking what happened. The news that Carmel Cato was about to receive would destroy him, and then it would quickly travel out into the streets through the crowds of people gathering in Crown Heights. And finally, one of the doctors came out to me and said, um, can you come with me? And um, she took me one of the rooms and she said, um, He didn't make it. Thirty years later, some of the most basic details of what went down that evening and over the next four days are still up for debate. The most thorough official accounting comes from a report commissioned by the state. It's called the Jurgenti Report. It came out two years after the fact, and it's nearly 700 pages long. In addition to combing through that report, we interviewed 40 witnesses, historians, and Crown Heights residents, and we reviewed all of the contemporary news reports and histories we could find. But the goal wasn't just to get a clear picture of the events themselves. The facts of those four days differ dramatically depending on who you talk to. And that, the way a story gets shaped, based on fears and resentments and prejudices, is the thing I wanted to really try to understand. How two communities could have such different interpretations of the same set of events. So, let's rewind. Back to the moments right before the crash, which is where the disagreements begin. The Rebbe was returning from a trip to a cemetery in Queens, He rarely left Crown Heights, but that day he was visiting the graves of his late wife and father-in-law. When he did leave the neighborhood, he normally had a police escort. For the last decade, throughout the fraught years of the 80s, the NYPD had been providing protection for Rebbe Schneerson. He was a global leader. There were reportedly threats on his life. The fact that the cops were escorting a civilian around felt to many Black residents like more proof of what they already knew, that the two communities had very different relationships with the police, and that everything that unfolded would have gone differently if the situation were reversed. If it was a Black person that hit a Jewish child, I feel that person would have been arrested on spot. This is Cheryl Weinglass talking to the local Fox affiliate in 1991. She'd been living in Crown Heights for 27 years at that point. His family history would be in the paper. He would be in the paper. We'd know where his family lives, whatever else. We haven't even seen the person who murdered this child. Witnesses pointed out that the last of the three cars seemed to speed up at the light to keep pace with the motorcade. 
And Yosef Lish, the driver, did say he was under the impression it was his job to keep as close to the Rebbe as possible, even if that meant flouting traffic laws. There are disagreements as to how fast the car was going. The speed limit on President Street is 30 miles per hour. The district attorney's office calculated Lifsch was going somewhere between 45 and 50. The biggest outrage, though, from the perspective of many Black residents, was the role of the Chatzala ambulance. Why did the Jewish ambulance service, the first to show up on the scene, take Lifsch and other Jewish passengers first when they were clearly less injured than Gavin and Angela? As we heard, the police explained it as an attempt to de-escalate the situation. But to many of the Black residents who had long been skeptical of the Hasidic community's private security patrols, the choice looked like favoritism, plain and simple. The problem is, an ambulance came and they're just going to take the drive and leave two little kids. I mean, those are children, man. You really lose them. Their medical attention was not the same medical attention that the Jewish gentleman got. You understand what I'm saying? They, they, they helped him before they helped the children. And the children were the victims, not him. Remember that there are no cell phones recording the events as they happen. No videos posted immediately on social media. The record that's taking shape is what's getting passed through the crowd and eventually the neighborhood by word of mouth. Someone even told me that when the news vans finally did show up, the police told them to leave, to not record. And one of the people in the crowd slashed the van's tires so they'd be forced to stay and cover the story. It started with the accident. And then the reactions of people to hearing the story of what happened. Yavila McCoy was 18 years old at the time. She lived on the block of the crash and was a member of one of the neighborhood's few Black Jewish families. Hatzala wasn't talking to the people. They were getting nervous because people started were starting to get mad that they couldn't get Gavin from behind the car. The word of mouth among us as Jews, because you know there's two words of mouth. There's what people are saying on the street, and then there's what people are saying behind the scenes, right? So the behind the scenes word of mouth among the Jews was that they had to get him out of there because they were scared that the Schwarzers were going to attack him. By attack him, she means Yosef Lish, the driver. And in case you're unfamiliar, Schwarza is a derogatory term in Yiddish for Black people. And so they were fearing for his life, and that's why they took him away. He wasn't hurt, you see? So Black people, we don't have our own private service to come get us. Even our children, right, can get hit by you, and then you get the privilege of having your own private ambulance service not only not serve us, but take you off of the scene. That's a reason to be mad. It was really interesting to talk to Yavila, because her perspective, even the way she used we— changed depending on what she was describing. And then from the Jewish side, it's, oh my gosh, the goyim are getting angry. And goyim is a Hebrew term for non-Jews. Two different stories. And then all hell broke loose. Not long after the kids were taken away, around 9 p.m., the NYPD's accident investigation squad arrives at the scene. They set up floodlights, which attract even more attention. And soon... There were around 200 people on the corner, shouting and grieving and demanding answers. The violence started at dusk. Dozens of demonstrators vented their anger with bottles and rocks that kept police and residents running and ducking. 
By 9.07, calls are coming into 911 reporting a riot on the streets of Crown Heights. In the state's report, there is almost no indication at all of police violence against Black residents during the chaotic aftermath of the crash. But according to Black residents we spoke with, as well as lawsuits filed after the fact, a lot of the earliest instances of physical violence came from the cops themselves, pushing, shoving, and worse. Pierre Regis was a 32-year-old immigrant from Haiti. He worked at a nursing home in New Jersey and happened to be visiting his family in Brooklyn on that first night. He had no idea what was going on or why as he turned onto President Street around 10.20 that night. He saw uh, rocks and bottles being thrown. He saw a lot of police in riot gear. This is Glenn Miller, a civil rights attorney who would represent Pierre Regis in a lawsuit against the city. They saw a black man driving a red sports car, and they assumed that he was up to no good. They assumed wrong, obviously. And so he sort of uh, panicked, and he tried to drive around the people in the street. And just a bunch of police officers uh, got in front of his car and started smashing his windows. And they dragged him out of his car. They beat him with their batons. They kicked him. They punched him. They then handcuffed him and took him away and brought him to the, I believe, the 71st precinct. When he woke up nearly four hours later in the hospital, he had five broken bones in his face, stitches over his eye, three missing front teeth, a severe concussion, and permanent brain damage. And this is something that, um, if it were on videotape, these police officers would have been identified, and hopefully they would have been prosecuted. But unfortunately, back then, you know, these, these events were not videotaped. And the officers who were involved in this case got away with a crime. This, this is not just a bunch of, you know, patrol officers on the scene. There was, there was the captain of the 7-1 precinct was standing right there. And they, they beat him almost to death. Still, to many on the other side of the conflict, the cops weren't an occupying force harassing them, but one that wasn't supporting them enough. A Lubavitch woman quoted in the Jurgenti report claims Black people in the crowd are shouting, the Jews killed the kids. The report goes on to describe a Black man climbing onto the roof of a car at 11 p.m. and shouting to the crowd, do you feel what I feel? Do you feel the pain? What are you going to do about it? Let's take Kingston Avenue. Kingston Avenue runs partially through the Jewish heart of Crown Heights. At 11.17, a 32-year-old Jewish man alleges that a group of black men struck him with bottles and chanted, Jews, get out of here. Around the same time, another Jewish man is allegedly beaten and robbed on Kingston Avenue. And then at 11.20, a 29-year-old Orthodox scholar named Yankel Rosenbaum, visiting from Australia, is attacked at the corner of President and Brooklyn Avenue near where he was staying with relatives. For a lot of people, it was evidence that the violence was motivated by nothing more than anti-Semitism, including Yankel's brother Norman in this interview with Court TV. Just about here, he was surrounded by a semicircle of people screaming, 
kill the Jew, kill the Jew. A group of at least 10 people begin to beat him. One of them, a 16-year-old Trinidadian-American named Lemrick Nelson, stabs Rosenbaum repeatedly with a pocket knife. By the time they were done, Rosenbaum lay bleeding out on the pavement with four stab wounds and a fractured skull. He's taken to the same hospital that Gavin and Angela were taken to. At 12.30 a.m., Mayor Dinkins arrives at his bedside. Uh, We visited him in the hospital, thought that he was going to be all right. We were told by the doctors that he was going to be okay, but the physicians had overlooked a second wound. Rosenbaum dies shortly after Dinkins' visit. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest who celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For Lubavitchers in Crown Heights, the death of Yinkel Rosenbaum isn't just a tragic result of an out-of-control riot. Do we see these events as a riot or a pogrom? Rather, it's connected to a history of anti-Jewish hatred and violence dating back more than 100 years in Eastern Europe. Anthropologist Henry Goldschmidt. A violent response to white supremacy or just a baseless, violent attack of, you know, Gentiles against Jews. That right there is the distinction that colors nearly every conversation about these four days. For many of the Caribbean Americans in Crown Heights, Gavin Cato's death is not just a tragic accident. It's connected to the systemic racism that plagues the neighborhood. The sense that resources and services and protection exists for one community, but not another. And to Lubavitchers, what was clearly an accident was now being used as an excuse for uncontrolled anti-Semitic violence. The vast majority of Lubavitch Hasidim would never use the term riot, certainly not rebellion, but would usually use the term pogrom. You know, that this was a Gentile attack on the Jewish minority with no justification, with nothing behind it except anti-Semitism. The next morning, Crown Heights wakes up to the news of Yankel Rosenbaum's death and waits to hear what David Dinkins will say about it. At a press conference that afternoon, a reporter asks the mayor whether he believes that Rosenbaum's murder was retaliatory. 
Dinkins says he's not sure. Maybe he's trying to avoid saying anything inflammatory. But for the Jews in Crown Heights, this feels proof positive that they've been abandoned by the city's first black mayor, a mayor they helped get elected. At the same time as the mayor's press conference, there's another rally taking place on President Ayutica, the site of the accident. It's being led by a young reverend named Al Sharpton. Here's Sharpton at a rally that week. I would tell the Jewish, Hasidic Jewish community that they're going to have to come down and deal with an equal footing in that community or they better get some moving bands. Today, Sharpton is something of a Black establishment figure, non-threatening enough to have his own show on MSNBC. But in 1991, there was perhaps no more controversial figure in all of New York City. Sharpton was known for demanding racial justice and publicly accusing police and elected officials of conspiring against Black New Yorkers. He also had a history of making statements in the process that many felt were anti-Semitic. His mere presence in Crown Heights that day meant that tensions were pretty much guaranteed to escalate. It also meant that he would inevitably attract more people from outside the neighborhood. When he's done speaking, Sharpton and a group of Black organizers from the neighborhood head off to meet with the Brooklyn DA to demand the arrest of the driver, Yosef Lish. The rest of the crowd heads towards the 71st Precinct, where they collide with a group of Jewish protesters holding their own rally. The Lubavitchers are demanding that police provide protection outside of 770, their synagogue and headquarters on Eastern Parkway. They want to inflame it and they inflame it. On our end, there is only peace. I'm telling you, I live here. I know. Our kids and everybody get along well. That's Henya Lane, the matchmaker we heard from the last episode, talking to a local ABC reporter during the riot. Here's Henya today. The Jews were not fighting. Get it straight. Maybe they're right. We should have fought. Yeah, maybe we should have come out with our guns and we should have beaten them up too. We're just nice people. There are official reports, as well as numerous eyewitnesses stating that members of the Lubavitch community did, in fact, throw bricks and physically fight with Black residents during the protests. That doesn't discount or somehow lessen the violence and anti-Semitism perpetrated by Black residents against Jews. Were there people who were anti-Semitic who were part of it? Absolutely. Here's Mark Winston Griffith, who was working for the Community Service Society of New York at the time. Do I feel that it was justified for a Hasidic man to lose his life? Absolutely not. Do I think that that was an act of anti-Semitism, his killing? Absolutely yes. Do I see what happened in terms of the uprising, the upheaval, the right, whatever you call it, in anti-Semitic terms? No. I think you can, you can hold the fact that there were some anti-Semitic elements to it and maybe some anti-Semitic people to it without concluding that it was a pogrom or that it was in totality sort of an anti-Semitic action. Each group's perception of the violence carried with it the weight of their very real histories. Black folks probably brought a whole list of grievances into what happened that day. I can certainly empathize and sympathize with Jewish people and Hasidic people in Crown Heights seeing it as an attack 
on their community. Absolutely. No doubt. On the evening of day two, August 20th, a Jewish musician named Isaac Bitone was making his way home from work with his 12-year-old son. He'd called a car service, but the car couldn't make its way through the crowds that had taken over the streets. We came here and it was blocked. It was here, the, pl- the police was here and it was blocked, so we could not go further. We stopped here. So the driver drops them off at the corner of Carroll and Schenectady. Isaac asks a cop if it's safe for him and his son to walk the remaining distance, and the cop assures him that they'll be fine. So with my son, he was 12 at the time, we walk there on this side, we walk, and, and, and all of a sudden we see a, 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 a group of, of teenagers, 12, 14, 16 about, all fired up, and they were chanting, Jew, 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 meaning we're going to uh, break some Jews. And they were here, they came to, and we were right in here by the, the gate uh, there of the, 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 the passage. The, the, the. This is exactly where it happened. I don't know, I don't know why I, 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 I continue to walk with my son. Someone throws a baseball bat, which narrowly misses him. After that, it's pebbles and stones. And then... And all of a sudden, I get a, a brick on my, on my head. A full-sized brick. Isaac collapses. The group closes in and pulls the boy away. I, 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 I fell on the, on the floor. People were come, coming with sticks and razors and all this stuff. So I had the, the, the I fell there. I don't remember, I, I don't think I, well, I felt for, uh, unconscious for too long. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe a minute or whatever. A woman watching from her window cries out for the police but none come. Instead, it's only when a reporter from the Village Voice, a Caribbean-American named Peter Noel, intervenes that the group stops. Right away, just instinctively, I started running towards the man who later came to know as Isaac Beton and his son, Yechel. This is Peter. I got a stone now on my leg. And I said, guys, I started cursing. I said, get the fuck back. I said, you know, these guys had nothing to do with it. You know, I keep saying, yo, get the fuck back. You know, I started speaking, you know, then I started saying, all your Trinidadians coming out to me. All of these guys had nothing to do with it. He felt like, like he felt, uh, make a friend like he was part of them, with, he was with them, you know. He told them, hey, 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 go, go, go there, meaning the action is there, you know. So the group left, you know, and, uh, and, and, and they accompanied me here. The ambulance was here. The next day, a full-page photograph of Bitone appeared on the cover of the New York Post. He was lying, bleeding on the ground. His crying son crouched over him. The headline, Day of Hate. That morning, day three, August 21st, an estimated 2,000 Lubavitchers gathered at 770 to mourn the death of Yankel Rosenbaum. The streets overflowed with men in dark suits and black hats. A black cloth was draped over the coffin. Hoisted on the shoulders of Hasidic men, the body of young Kel Rosenbaum was carried through the streets of Crown Heights, the same streets where this young Australian student was stabbed to death during the recent violence. It is unfortunate that he himself... Mayor Dinkins didn't attend the procession in Crown Heights, another inexplicable political misstep. For two days, the Jewish community had been experiencing traumatic violence. It felt like this was a pogrom and that Dinkins was all but sanctioning it. 
His absence at Rosenbaum's funeral felt like even more proof that he was taking sides against them. He wanted to be at the funeral. Then it turns out, you know, the casket was, you know, marched 770 to the, you know, the Lubavitch headquarters, and there was a big service or recitation of psalms and prayers with thousands of people outside, uh, you know, the, the, the Lubavitcher headquarters. Herbert Block was the mayor's liaison to the Jewish community. It became kind of like, like uh, a, a religious service. So, you know, had he known that that was going to take place, which we, weren't, which we didn't know and weren't told wasn't happening, he would have, you know, most assuredly been there to show his, you know, solidarity to what, you know, this victim of an anti-Semitic act or an act of hate that, that had been stabbed, you know, the day before. Dinkins does make an appearance in Crown Heights that evening. He meets with a group of around 50 Black teenagers at PS 167 on Eastern Parkway. He tries to pacify the group, to tell them he wants to make things better. A student named Kim stands up and says she's, quote, tired of death. I don't care about what's going on with the Jewish community right now. You see, they got this. I'm talking about my brother, that I, when I walk out the street, he might be beaten the head. What can we do right now? See, because there's a lot of displaced anger out there. Okay, a lot. And a lot of the displaced anger boils down to, I see in this community, they have certain rights that we don't have. What's up with that? We need to deal with that first. Dinkins doesn't address what she's saying, that they, quote, have certain rights that we don't have. Instead, he gets defensive. The purpose of my presence here is not to solve all the problems, not necessarily to use all attention, although obviously I wish I could, but to demonstrate a concern. That's why I'm here. I don't have to be here. I could set the police commissioner and four deputy mayors. I could sit at City Hall or Gracie Mansion. I'm here because I care. And it's not the first time I've been here. So I don't want to hear any one of you again say, come to this community, you ought to come to the community because I've been here. Outside, the neighborhood has descended further into chaos. At the same time that Dinkins is defending himself at PS 167, nearly 600 black demonstrators are gathered in front of 770. Some of them begin tossing rocks and bottles at the building, even shouting things like Heil Hitler and burning an Israeli flag. A group of about 100 Hasidim start throwing rocks and bottles of their own. The two groups are separated by cops in riot gear. Meanwhile, the crackdown has prompted complaints of police brutality. Some people who claim to have been innocent bystanders charging that they were manhandled and even arrested by cops going after demonstrators. A little after 7 p.m., the famous Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin is in a cab on Utica Avenue on his way to hear Dinkins speak at PS 167. A group of black people surround Breslin's cab. They smash the windows and drag him out and beat him in the street. A half hour later, a patrol car is set on fire near the intersection of Utica and President Street. At least 10 officers are allegedly injured by thrown bottles. EMTs on the scene describe the area as looking like a war zone. Back at PS 167, Dinkins is met by a crowd of black protesters outside the school. A mob of about 150 angry people stormed its way up Eastern Parkway towards the school building. Violence exploded as the mob spotted news vans, forcing the media inside the building. The rocks and bottles rained down periodically, even one hitting the mayor's car at one point, damaging the roof. 
while he pleaded on the steps for calm. A police detail manages to get Dinkins safely to the Cato residence, a few blocks from PS 167. He meets with the family, and when he leaves the house around 8.30 p.m., he's handed a bullhorn to address the crowd gathered outside. His words are barely audible over the shouts and boos. Later that evening, a reporter from Channel 7 Eyewitness News asks Stinkins about the response he got from the crowd outside the Cato family home. Let us be clear. The, the problem now is not whether or not they applaud the mayor or boo the mayor. What's important is that they understand that there is concern and that they understand that under no circumstances am I going to tolerate lawlessness and violence. Under no circumstances. And you believe that that there can be control maintained in this city? There is no question that control can be maintained in this city. Absolutely. All right. Mayor Jenkins, Despite the mayor's certainty, things just get worse as the night wears on. Stores across the neighborhood are looted. At 9.45, a shooter starts firing from the roof of a building on Schenectady Avenue. Eight police officers are hit and wounded. Two Molotov cocktails are thrown from the roof of another building, injuring another police officer. Throughout the night, groups from both communities face off in the streets. Around midnight, Dinkins meets with NYPD Commissioner Lee Brown in a conference room at Kings County Hospital, where the mayor has gone to visit injured police officers. According to the Jurgenti report, Dinkins tells Brown that the NYPD should, quote, employ every police tactic available for riot control. The tactical response would be overseen by then-Deputy Police Commissioner Ray Kelly, That's the same Ray Kelly who, in years to come, would aggressively promote policing tactics that many believe targeted people of color. By morning on day four, the streets of Crown Heights are flooded with cops, 2,000 in riot gear, arresting anyone they can grab for the most minor infractions. One commanding officer recalls being told that if, quote, anyone does anything, arrest them. Another inspector briefed on the strategy was told to, quote, do whatever is necessary to take back the streets. The crackdown that night yielded more arrests than all three previous nights combined. On the WBAI show Off the Hook, a reporter described the police tactics he saw on the streets as he drove through the neighborhood. Police who had cordoned off both sides of President Street, that is the east and western ends of President Street, moved in on the crowd, and the crowd responded with more bottles, This time, cops herded and shadowed the demonstrators wherever they went, controlled their movements through the use of mounted units, and whenever things started to get out of hand, moved in quickly to arrest those allegedly instigating violence. Uh, As I speak now even, I can see a plume of smoke rising uh, from the uh, southern, I'm sorry, the northern end of Utica Avenue, closer to... That showing of police power on day four forced the neighborhood into something resembling a calm. The following day, Friday, August 23rd, zero arrests were made. Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath, came and went without incident. Nearly 1,700 cops were now assigned to the area. Over the previous four days, more than 100 people had been arrested. On Saturday morning, Dinkins and Commissioner Lee Brown tore the neighborhood. They laid wreaths at the corner where the car struck Gavin and Angela and at the site of Yankel Rosenbaum's attack. Local businesses began counting their losses. Union Sneaker King estimated $150,000 of merchandise was stolen. 
New York fried chicken had been set on fire, resulting in more than $200,000 in damage. The list went on. The Utica Gold Exchange, Ajax Handbag, Eli Jamaica Gold, Lou Mark Haber. Estimates on the number of injured cops ranged from 109 to 152. 27 police vehicles in the 71st precinct were damaged. Saturday afternoon, 500 black protesters, led by Reverend Al Sharpton and flanked by a police cordon, marched along Eastern Parkway. They started at Utica Avenue and walked past 770. No significant violence broke out. On Sunday, August 25th, six days after the accident, Dinkins attended the services at First Baptist Church in Crown Heights. He referred to the famous line from his inauguration a year and a half earlier, A mosaic is a work of art, and New York City is no exception. It is a gorgeous mosaic of people of every race, religion, national origin, and sexual orientation. The wonderful thing about this mosaic is that it's never finished. It has been, and always will be, a work in progress. He went on, We can never bring Gavin and Yankel back but we can let their deaths serve as a catalyst for meaningful changes that will prevent other deaths. In a strange moment of defensiveness, or tone deafness or something, Dinkins referred to an editorial that appeared in the New York Times a couple of days earlier during the worst of the riots. He looked out over the crowd assembled in First Baptist Church. As the New York Times noted the other day, he said, I'm the mayor not a magician. Next time on Love Thy Neighbor. Among these Jewish voters, anguish from the anti-Jewish violence in Crown Heights lingers. We want justice! A Jew was killed! These acts of anti-Semitism and racism grew in the last year and the last two years. The response too often has been to hide to flee, and to have our city officials, too many of them, not responding and not fighting back. He's, he's enforcing this, this broken windows theory. I'm going to get black people and tell them, hey, you, you, you only come out when you have to go to the groceries. I don't want you hanging out in the corners. I have a group of young cops who claims we own the night. Love Thy Neighbor is hosted by me, Collier Meyerson. The show was written by Noah Remnick and myself. Jess Jupiter is our producer, and Justine Daum is our managing producer. Production assistance and research by Yinka Rickford Angwin. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Joel Lovell is our editor. Fact-checking by Charles Richter. Original music is by Will Johnson. Our engineers are Davey Sumner and Jason Richards. Our show art, which includes a David Burns photo from the Associated Press, was designed by Kurt Courtney, Josefina Francis, and Lauren Vieira at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Leela Day, Jasmine Hughes, Mordecai Lightstone, Ike Shreese Kandaraja, Zandra Ellen, Grace Chen, Moira Curran, and Khadim Jang. 
Legal Services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw, Granderson Day Rocher, and Katie Ali Mohammadi, and Vernissa Washington at Donaldson Caliph Perez. This show is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weisberman. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Love Thy Neighbor, you can listen to the next episode and the rest of the series right now exclusively on Odyssey. Find all the podcasts and audio that matter to you. Download Odyssey from the App Store or Google Play today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.